Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Now just before we go to today's programme, which is a debate between Nick Peters and Ken Humphreys on the historicity of Jesus, there are a couple of things that I need to mention before we start, and those things have to do with the timings in the debate. So first, unfortunately, while we were recording the debate, we had some internet connection problems, which normally wouldn't cause much hassle during, say, an interview. But when you're trying to keep track of the time in a debate, they can cause, of course, huge difficulties. And as a consequence of that, unfortunately, Ken's opening statement ended up being 40 seconds shorter than it should have been. Now, let me say straight away that Ken is absolutely fine with that. There was more than enough time in the Q&A for him to catch up with that, and he made very good use of that time. And Ken is quite satisfied that he was given a fair hearing. So I thought I'd just mention that to preempt the possibility of emails coming my way informing me about that problem. And I also want to say, actually, the whole business of timings in this debate was not about being strict. It was about really, I mean, I wanted the debate to be quite relaxed and informal in its feel. And it was really, these timings were there just to give us a kind of structure to work with, quite honestly. Um, Secondly, if any of you might be tempted to sit there with a stopwatch to check these timings more generally, you will find that probably none of the statements fit the advertised timings. And that's because with the agreement of both speakers, I have removed excessive ums and ahs and coughs and such like to make it easier to listen to. And I hasten to add, I have removed, of course, nothing of substance or changed the meaning of anything. As I say, the editing was just in order to make it easier to listen to and a more useful experience for everybody. So that having been said, we move now on to the debate itself. And I thank you for listening. Hello, everybody. Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today we have a very special program because this is the very first time that The Mind Renewed is venturing into the territory of a debate. And I think it's no exaggeration to say that we're jumping into the deep end, rather, with this first debate, judging by the somewhat spirited nature of our two guests today, who I will, of course, introduce in just a moment. But first, let me say that the subject of our debate is going to be on the historicity of Jesus. Was the Jesus who we read about in the pages of the New Testament a real person of history? Or is it just possibly true that he never actually existed? And of course, we're going to be talking specifically about the Jesus of the Bible, because obviously there were many people in first century Palestine called Jesus or Yeshua, but uh, only one who gave rise to what we know as Christianity. And it's the historical reality of that Jesus, which our guests will be debating today. And I guess that might seem like a bit of an odd question to many to be considering that question, because, you know, I'm sure there are many people's reaction to that would be, well, as it did, I think it would be my reaction really is, well, why bother with that? Of course, Jesus existed. He was a real person of history. That's that's well established. However, one of our guests today, Ken Humphreys, who will be kicking off the debate in a few minutes, believes that Jesus never existed, as per the name of his website, jesusneverexisted.com, and he has kindly agreed to join us today to defend that thesis, whereas our other guest, Nick Peters, who is a Christian apologist based in the US, is firmly of the opinion that Ken is 
dead wrong about that and joins us to defend the view that Jesus was in fact an historical person. And we'll be saying a bit more about both of our guests in just a moment. But first, let me welcome you both, gentlemen, to The Mind Renewed. It's good to have you on. Good afternoon, Julian. Good to be here, Julian. Good afternoon to both of you. It's really good of you both to come on. Thank you ever so much for your willingness to make this debate possible. So can I start with you, Nick? I came across you and your work through J.P. Holding, who was on this program a few months ago. And I know that you know him very well. And uh, when I said to J.P. that I was thinking about organizing this debate with Ken, he said that he thought that you would be very keen on it. So I'm very glad that you said yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have this web-based ministry, don't you, called uh, Deeper Waters, which is a blog and a podcast. And uh, you've interviewed an impressive number, I have to say, of very highly regarded Christian scholars since you started. So um, when did you actually start that? Well, I started different things at different times. I've been doing a Projects Ministry since about 2000. I started the blog back in 2007 after reading Hugh Hewitt's book, Blog, apropos title, isn't it? And I started a podcast around 2013, found a carrier, and the podcast, I think, has been gaining popularity, and it's been one of the best times that I've had. I, one of the things that I like to say about the show is, Every time I sit down and do a show, I gain education as well because I've got two hours to sit and talk with a guest and ask them anything that I want to. Absolutely great. Yeah. And what kind of guests have you had on so far? Can you name some people that people might know? Oh, yeah. We've had a Greg Coker, Rob Bowman, J.P. Holding, who you mentioned. Craig Keener has been on. Ben Witherington, Craig Blomberg has been on twice. Dan Wallace. Wow. That's quite a list. Yeah. If people go to my blog page and just look through the list. If you're familiar with Christian scholarship, you're going to find the name of someone you know on that list. Great work, yeah. And uh, is it right that you're doing a master's degree at the moment? Mm-hmm. Master's in New Testament at Northwest University in South Africa. My focus is going to be on Matthew 27 with the resurrection of the saints asking, is this a historical event or is it apocalyptic imagery? Aha, uh-huh. well, that is a very interesting question, because that often comes up in debate, doesn't it, that particular question, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so how, how, how come you're, you're doing this uh, master's degree in South Africa, then? My father-in-law recommended that I go to that school. He said it's got good accreditation, said I could really get a degree that would make an impact there, and get a degree quickly as well, which is help, because once you get a master's, you can start teaching, and that's what I'd really love to be doing, is teaching. And in the notes that you sent to me, Nick, you mentioned that both you and your wife uh, have been diagnosed with Asperger's. So I'm just wondering how that affects your ministry. Do you find that that's something that God uses in some way in your ministry? It's really odd in some ways because my wife had said if she could find a cure for it, she'd take it. And I think that could help her. But if a cure was offered to me, I'd say thanks, but no thanks. Because I think Asperger's really affects the way my mind works allows me to see reality through a different lens. I had a friend who I knew in Bible college and seminary, and he called me when his son was diagnosed with Asperger's and said, what do you think? And I said, God has given you a great gift. You're going to see the world through new eyes that you've never seen it through before. Enjoy it. And it doesn't mean it's not without its challenges. Many times in social situations, it can be very difficult and awkward. You can freeze up in some circumstances. But I'm fortunate that my wife and I tend to freeze up in different circumstances. So when I reach a point where 
I don't know what to say. She's usually right there, and she's the best one who knows how to say just the right thing to help calm me down. <laughs> Great. So you compliment each other really well. That's that's wonderful. Oh, I compliment her constantly. <laughs> oh, you mean a different kind of compliment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks ever so much for coming on, Nick. It's uh, great to speak to you. So can we turn now to Ken, Ken Humphreys? Mm-hmm. Now, your name came up actually in a conversation I was having with somebody on the TMR YouTube channel. And this person specifically recommended you as somebody who could articulate this particular view about Jesus. So uh, thank you for coming on. And uh, as as I mentioned, you run this website, JesusNeverExisted.com, and I understand that you have a book by the same name, but well, actually, without the dot, without the dot com, <laughs> and I guess the the title kind of says where you're coming from with all this. But um, how did you get into doing this kind of thing? You know, writing, talking, creating videos, and and all that. Well, how did I get into it? Um, essentially, almost by accident, because. I started to write a different book originally. I, want, I, I wanted to write a book on the dark ages, and that's what drew my attention to the church. And I thought, well, if we're going to have to look at the church, which, of course, has much to do with the dark ages, we have to start with the founder, let's say, of this church, Jesus. So I thought, well, let's, let's have a look at what we know about Jesus and, and, uh, and start with him. And until that point, I should say that I thought Jesus existed like everybody thinks, you know, or or let's say the vast majority of people think, Uh, as you said in your opening comments, the one's normal response is to say, well, of course he existed. That's what people usually say. And I would have said that as well for most of my life. Well, of course he did. The interesting thing is when you say, well, okay, of course he did. But let's let's say, what can we really know historically about Jesus? That's when you discover something quite extraordinary that in fact you you enter a void of historical information and that's what drew me into into this this what has been a long-term project and a major chunk of my life the very fact that however deeply you dig looking for Jesus you do not find him you find evidence of belief for sure but you do not find the historical character and I thought that was very interesting and very worthwhile sharing with other people and from the website people asked me you know is this available in a book form so eventually a book form came out and then that's been followed up by a YouTube channel and now a second book has just been released as well so it's Uh taken over and I can see that uh, you're already coming across quite forcefully. And this is one of the things I notice about your website, actually. You, it's a very forceful and quite argumentative kind of website. And uh, I get the feeling that you don't give the opposite view um, very much of the benefit of the doubt. And I'm just wondering if you've consciously adopted that kind of style or is that just you? Is that your personality? Well, but let me put it this way. I have Christian friends, right? I do. I recently attended the wedding of two Catholic friends of mine, you know, and we are great friends. There's no issue with Christians on an individual basis, and I'm sure I'd be happy to have Nick here uh, come over for dinner. That wouldn't be a problem. Um, But I do have a problem with Christianity because I look at it from the point of view of an historian and the effect that Christianity has had on the development of human society, and it's been a very damaging effect. It's led to so much cruelty, so much death and and mayhem across the world and across the centuries. That's why I speak in a very emphatic manner. I mean, if you could 
if you like, make the mental leap. I feel very much as if I'm talking about a criminal organization. That's why I don't mince my words when I talk about the subject. Wow. Okay. Right. Well, that's certainly very interesting to get a, a kind of preview of uh, the, the way you speak and the way that you, you argue your case. And you said that you come at it from the point of view of an historian and your educational background is in history and social sciences. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. And computing. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I've spent a, yeah. a lot of time in the early years of the computer business um, and taught, gone back into education from time to time. So, uh-huh. yeah, that's my background, both in Britain and abroad. Okay, and the last thing I want to ask you about is the fancy dress parties, because when we, <laughs> when we first spoke on Skype, there was this wonderful image of, actually, it's still there. Yes, it is, with you wearing a crown. Yes. And I was slightly disappointed that you sent me a different picture to go with this debate. Well, you're not wearing a crown, but uh, you know, what's what's uh, what's all this with the fancy dress parties? They, they look like fun. Well, you see, I'm a fun person, despite the fact that I speak very strongly about the subject of Christianity and religion. I, I'm actually not a sour grapes person at all. I like to have fun because very much I believe this is the only life we're ever going to have so let's enjoy it right so part of my enjoyment of it is to have pretty outrageous parties it sounds like a great idea yeah <laughs> indeed although i would say i don't think this is the only life and i think we can probably enjoy both but that's just my <laughs> my way of looking at it okay gentlemen now it's uh, as i say it's great to speak with you but of course we do need to move on because i'm looking at the time here so i thought that i would say quickly now a few things before we get going um now the first thing i want to say is that although i do consider debate to be very useful. It's a very useful way of thrashing out ideas, uh, giving a good introduction to whatever the subject is. I do actually rarely think that debates are good at finally settling the issue. So uh, at the end of this, whoever feels, uh, you know, this person's won or that person's won the debate, I put one in inverted commas there, let me encourage everybody to continue looking into this subject because at the end of the day, there is no substitute for personal study. And I'm quite sure that both of my guests today would agree with that. Um, absolutely. absolutely. And uh, Secondly, my role, of course, in all this is essentially going to be as timekeeper. Obviously, as I've already expressed, I have, and as listeners know, I already have my views about this kind of subject. So, uh, but I'm going to have to bite my lip and keep quiet during main, the main parts of this debate, although I may well chip in a bit anyway during the Q&A section that's coming up. Thirdly, I'm not too keen to be overly strict and formal uh, with this debate. Um, I don't really like it when speakers get cut off halfway through the sentence, if they go over time, that kind of thing. Um, I always find that irritating and I often think it's unnecessary. So Although I shall time you, gentlemen, I will give you a final minute warning and then I shall allow you to finish your thought before asking you to stop. Within reason, of course, I'm trusting that you'll both respect my approach on that. I'm, I'm sure you will. And also, of course, you don't need to use all the time that's available. That is up to you. But I also warn you that I will not let you have it back at another point in the debate. OK, so as long as you understand that. Finally, the structure of the debate is going to be, we will start with Ken for a 10-minute opening statement in favour of the proposition that Jesus never existed. Then we will go to Nick for a 10-minute opening statement against that proposition. And then we will move straight into second statements or rebuttals. So then we will go to Ken for a five-minute second statement. And that'll be followed by a five-minute second statement from Nick. And after that, we shall then move into that period of Q&A, which I just mentioned. I will then alternately invite each of our guests to uh, question each other. And as I say, I may well chip in a little bit with that as we go along. And then finally, when the uh, dust has settled, we shall uh, go into the closing statements. First of all, 
Ken for five minutes and then Nick for the final five minutes. So I hope that's clear. Are there any questions from either of you? That's fine. Nick? Great. Okay, well, we shall proceed then. Ken, let me invite you then to begin the debate with your opening statement of up to 10 minutes, defending the proposition that Jesus never existed. And I'm getting my stopwatch ready here, such as it is. I'm not sure how reliable it is, but... Okay. Okay, off you go then. Okay, the proposition Jesus never existed. Yes, it might strike many people as uh, pretty extreme. Um, It it, it certainly brings people up short. I I know it gives probably offence to Christians because it's such a challenge to their way of thinking. If they live their entire life with the notion that Jesus is watching them, that they are in a relationship with Jesus, and that when they pass on from this life, they'll be joining Jesus, the rude awakening to discover that it actually is a non-existent historical character is not one that they will find at all comfortable. But I am committed to historical truth. I don't mind if people comfort themselves with some delusion relating to God or Jesus, but I'm concerned with historical truth. Now, as I said a moment ago, I didn't begin my life with a determination not to believe that Jesus existed. I actually thought he did. I thought he did as in the way that most people did. We grow up in the Western world, at least in a Christian culture. Images of Jesus are all around us. The media covers stories about Jesus. The films are certainly chock-a-block with Jesus. So one doesn't naturally challenge the idea. And even if you don't accept the Christian notion that this was the son of God, you know, it's not a difficult proposition to say, well, I think there was a man called Jesus. He was probably a nice man or maybe he was a rebel or maybe he was a philosopher or a healer or what have you. But you, you sort of feel very comfortable with the notion there was probably somebody. Now, that's where I was before I started my study of Jesus. And one is taken aback by the discovering that the historical evidence for Jesus is actually so vanishingly impossible that, you know, you just cannot find it. There is no evidence there, not in the way that one might expect of somebody who was indeed a, a, a mighty and, and, and charismatic figure. Um, we we are obliged, of course, to consider the Gospels because they are our only source for the Jesus character. And whilst some people might be so minded to accept the Gospels as absolute truth, or at least containing the elements of truth, the fact emerges when you study them in in some considerable depth, they are a story which has very little connection with the truth. And in fact, what we have in the gospel story is a more or less realistic historical setting into which an imaginary character has been intruded. The the figure of Jesus didn't actually come to light from a human person whose, whose reputation has been enhanced, but rather from the idea that such a person did appear at a certain stage in Jewish history uh, and subsequently was crucified and that people believe such an uh, such a notion had uh, uh, really happened but where where do we where do we actually begin this story 
one of the startling discoveries is, is that the gospel writers are not the imagined apostles and disciples of Jesus at all, that the names given to the four gospels are the result of a church uh, decision, and that these figures, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are very shady characters and certainly don't add their names to the gospels. So, there, and most New Testament scholars will accept that these these are anonymous documents. Now, that wouldn't be too bad, although it's surprising that, 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 that they didn't append their name and say, I was actually there and I was a witness. So the four Gospels, then, they are anonymous documents. And the original, the first of them is not the Gospel of Matthew, but the Gospel of Mark. The shortest of the Gospels, the Gospel that lacks any any story of, of the birth of Jesus, the, the Gospel that lacks any a, a, a development of, of the resurrection appearances of Jesus, is a very simple story. It is the basis upon which Matthew wrote a more developed story and Luke and, and John even more developed stories. Right. So. Our anonymous documents actually fall into a trajectory of development in which you can see how certain claims and, and story elements have been tidied up or developed in, in, in the later Gospels. So that is, 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 if you like, gives a question mark. But then if we try to find confirming evidence anywhere, whether from archaeology or from historical references, we find none. There are no evidences coming for, from, from uh, uh, written sources from, from uh, uh, either the Jews or the Greeks or the Romans during the lifetime of Jesus. So this character, who supposedly was so, so impressive, he drew multitudes to him, didn't impress anybody enough to make any comment about it until decades later when anonymous characters in a different language formed this story. Now, that raises the number of question marks to a very high level. And then when we go to look for the sites of Jesus's actions, we find these are again non-substantiated in the historical record, that all the major places in, in, in the areas of Judea and Galilee that we know existed, Jesus didn't make any appearance in them, and that the, the small villages and the other sites where he did appear um, are just not found. So there is a lack of confirming evidence, both archaeologically and historically. And on top of that, then if we look more closely at the stories, we see that they correspond to very prototypic stories found either in the Old Testament or in cases, in some cases, in, in, in the, the, the surrounding polytheistic culture, which have been borrowed and added to the Jesus story. So, for example, all those instances of healings and this curing the sick and curing blindness, etc., they are all to be found in the Old Testament, which Christians know perfectly well because they talk in terms of prophecy fulfilled. You know, well, if it happened in the Old Testament, then Jesus fulfilled it. But in actual fact, the simpler solution, a more credible solution, is that the Christian writers have simply updated Old Testament stories. Now, to finish off, why did they do this? They did this simply because the Jewish system of religion had been devastated by the wars in Rome. The Jews were bereft because they had lost their temple, lost the, the priesthood that ran the Jewish uh, faith. And here was 
new hope for the Jews as the new Israel, that they could become the new true Israel who would be following Jesus as as their intermediary to to God. Okay, Ken, you have one minute left. One minute left. So let me just summarize then. We have no evidence for the story and plenty of evidence for how the story was constructed. And we have good reasons to explain why they did that. So we do not have to subscribe to the notion uh, that of course he existed because there is there is no of course about it. He didn't exist. And we can explain precisely how the story came about. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Ken. That was your opening statement. And uh, we've been slightly imprecise on our timekeeping just because of the fact that we had an internet problem, which will not be evident because it will be taken out. Uh, Thank you very much indeed for that opening statement. And let me turn now to Nick for your initial statement. So if you are ready to proceed, you have also up to 10 minutes and your time begins now. I wish to thank Julian for his show and his service to Christ and for choosing me to be a guest on here to represent this important position. It is definitely an honor and I pray to defend it admirably. I also want to thank Ken for coming on to present the other side. I hope this will be a good and lively debate between the two of us and edifying for the listeners. If listeners start reading the best scholarship out there on this question and looking for the answers, I will know we did what we were supposed to do today. Several centuries ago, a man named Ptolemy came up with a system to use to determine the orbit of the planets. This system was extremely convoluted, and it involved epicycles of planets changing just to make the system work. But the system did work, and it did work with the data that was available at the time. Ptolemy had one little problem. He was wrong. Centuries later, Copernicus came up with a new system. While the data was not in yet to verify it entirely, the main reason the system was chosen at the end was that it did explain all the data, and it was much simpler to use. Mythicism is a system that seeks to also explain all the data. But I think like the system of Ptolemy, it requires too many twists and turns that are thrown in just to make the system work. I will be putting forward a simpler system and one that best explains the data without adding information that is ad hoc. My position is going to be simple. Behind the rise of a church in Christianity, there is a historical core with a man named Jesus. For the sake of argument, it could be that this man did not do miracles or rise from the dead, but these were legends that were added in. Still, these would be legends added to a historical core that has the man Jesus at the center. Since I am making a positive case, I will wait in the Q&A for Ken to ask me the questions that he thinks are defeaters. I also wish to stress that for Ken to overcome my system, he must first show that I am misinterpreting the data, and then he must provide a better interpretation and why his should be chosen. Planting a seed of doubt will not be sufficient. A scientist defending evolution will not have a whole system overturned if there is one piece of data that seems difficult to explain. What we are dealing with are the systems as a whole. I'd like to start off with a statement you might find incredible coming from a Christian about Jesus and his time. That is that Jesus was not worth talking about. Jesus was a preacher in the area of the world mainly valued only for being a trade route and the people often viewed the suspicion of a culture around him for being out of sync with their society. His career took a turn for the worse when he was crucified, thus setting him in a position of shame to all around him. Any hopes he had had would have died with him and his followers would have all quit. As N.T. Wright says, in those days when your Messiah died, you went home or you found a new Messiah. In light of this, What amazes me is not how many people did not mention Jesus. What surprises me is that anyone did at all. Indeed, what we have is four Gospels that were written, and I would contend within the first century, an account of the early church in Acts, and numerous epistles, many of them from the hand of Paul. Considering the time of the event and the dating of the writings, this is an incredibly short time in the ancient world. How short is it? Let's make a comparison. Hannibal was said to be a great general who crossed the Alps and nearly conquered the Roman Empire. 
By the way, it's worth noting we have two contradictory accounts of how he crossed the Alps, and no one doubts he did it still. With such a success as this, what record do we have of him from his time? We have one scrap. That's it. If we want a full account of what he did, we have to wait 60 to 80 years later for Polybius. This is about the same time frame liberal scholars place the Gospels at. Our first data is the epistles of Paul. What do we learn from them? About Jesus, we learn that he was descended from David according to the flesh and born of a woman at the appropriate time. He lived a life under the law and had brothers, one of which is named as James. He also had numerous teachings, such as ones on divorce and a final judgment. He instituted a meal of his followers the night he was betrayed. His death was around the time of Passover, as he is our Passover lamb. He was crucified by the Jews, and it was claimed after his death on the third day that he had risen from the dead and was seen by many. By the way, all these claims come from Pauline epistles that are universally considered to be Pauline, so a forgery argument will not work here. We should not be surprised if the Pauline epistles do not give a full account of the life of Jesus. That was not their purpose. Where we find his allusions often to the teaching of Jesus in a high-context society, as shown by Pilch and Molina in their book on the New Testament world, where listeners were to fill in the gaps in quotation of scripture to show that this was the plan of God all along. When we get to the Gospels, we find that the Gospels, as Richard Burridge has shown, are Greco-Roman biographies. This would show that the Gospel writers were seriously intending to write what they thought was history. They could have been mistaken and wrong on some points, but let's be clear on their intent. Archaeology has been a friend of the Gospels, and especially Acts. This includes the finding of synagogues, the kind of boat used in the account of Jesus during the storm and walking on the water, a house archaeologists think would be the house of Peter, the bones of Caiaphas, the crucified man that gives clues to bad of Jesus, and the poor Bethesda described in John 5, and numerous others. Archaeology has not found everything it never could. What we have found is astounding and sheds great light on the difficult narrative. We also find embarrassing material that Gospels would not make up. The Gospels would not want to make up that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. That would put him in a lower position than John in that society. They would not want to make up that there were towns he could not do miracles in due to a lack of faith. They would not want to make up his not knowing the day or hour of his coming and be all of that discourse. They would not want to make up that he was crucified. They would not want to make up women being the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Also, the Gospels read as first century documents. They do not raise up concerns that were important to the church in the second century, and they use language that is first century. They contain many statements in Aramaic, so much so that even a scholar like Crossley thinks that Mark could have been written in the 40s. They refer to Jesus as the Son of Man, a title he is not referred to as later on. Finally, a powerful case has been made that these are eyewitness accounts. Richard Balcom has written a massive tome called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, showing that the Gospels are by eyewitnesses or contain eyewitness accounts. Even Dale Allison, at a paper given at the Society of Biblical Literature, has said that much of the Gospel of John, the one most often viewed with skepticism, he finds to come from an eyewitness source. If we move outside the Gospels, we find surprisingly that a few people do refer to Jesus. The main one to talk about is Tacitus, a Roman senator who wrote his Annals of History around 115 AD. Tacitus says the following in 15.44, that all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor, and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was a result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. In a most mischievous superstition, thus checked from the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things become hideous and shameful from every part of the world, find their center become popular. 
All the manuscripts of Tacitus that we have contain this, so to say it is an interpolation would require strong evidence, since there is no textual evidence. This account is also not one Christians would make up. It does not speak honoringly of Christ. It treats Christianity and Christians as shameful. And in fact, it's more of an off-the-cuff remark. Tacitus does not mention Christ to tell us about Christ, but to tell us about the Christians. Interestingly, this is the only passage in Tacitus that mentions Pontius Pilate. Some might say that Tacitus' source was hearsay. Then the fourth book of the Annals, Tacitus says about another account that my object in mentioning and refuting this story is by conspicuous example to put down hearsay and request all into whose hands my work shall come, not to catch eagerly at wild and improbable rumors in preference to the genuine history which has not been perverted into romance. Tacitus was a diligent and thorough researcher. Something he might have got it from his best friend Pliny. This is possible, for that would not mean Tacitus was uncritical, as he says in Book 15 of the Annals, shortly after the account mentioning Christ, that so it is related by Caius Pliny, handed down from whatever source. I had no intention of suppressing it, however absurd it may seem. You that Antonia should have lent her name at her life's period of a hopeless project, that Piso, with his well-known affection for his wife, should have pledged himself to another marriage, but for the fact that the lust of dominion inflames her heart more than any other passion. Another possibility is Tacitus had access to Roman records as a senator and a high-ranking person in the empire that we frankly just don't have anymore. Another possibility is Tacitus could have got the information from another historian living in Rome at the time, namely Josephus. Both of these last two would be valid sources that surely Ken should accept. I do not have time to go on to talk about Josephus, Lucian, Pliny the Younger, or Marbar Serapian. For Ken's position to work, it would not need to be shown that the Gospels might make one or two errors. That would not be enough to disavow any work of ancient history. You have one minute. They would need to be shown to be complete fictions and unreliable by any means. We would also need to deal with the evidence of the Pauline epistles and find a way that better explains the data and is less ad hoc. It is my contention that this will not be done. It is for reasons like this that the majority of New Testament scholars and classical historians do not consider the Mephistus position even worthy of consideration. The evidence is too overwhelming. Note also this is not because the majority of such scholars are Christians. After all, the Society of Biblical Literature, where most of these scholars convene, elected John Dominic Cross and the Jesus Seminar as a president for 2012, hardly a beacon of evangelical scholarship. The reason they take their stance on Jesus being historical is the data pure and simple. I have made my case. It is up to Ken to try to overcome it and put a better one up and one to retreat historical data consistently. I contend that this cannot be done. Well done. That was just within the time. Um, can I just say that while either of you is speaking, can you be careful not to move too many papers around because it's coming over, of course, on the recording? It's not so bad so far, but I thought I'd better mention it in case it gets worse. <laughs> OK, guys. Well, that was great. Thank you very much. Now, if you're happy to proceed straight away to the next section, we shall move now on to second statements in which, of course, you both have the opportunity to rebut each other's arguments and we will therefore turn first to ken uh, so ken can i invite you please to give us your second statement for up to five minutes if you are ready oh, okay yeah your time begins now okay l- listening to nick it's obviously d- delightful to hear him uh, re- re- recite the various defenses that that, 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 that are ever made for the defense of historical jesus a large part of the work, study and arguments of mythicists like myself is, of course, dealing with these various claims which have been worked on by apologetics uh, uh, since they th- since they started in the game. 
Nonetheless, the fact that arguments are made doesn't mean to say that they are in any sense convincing. They are maybe made frequently in the same way that, myth, uh, that, that apologists will always denounce the, the non-existence of Jesus as not worth considering. That's, how, that's how, how much they want to dismiss this argument. They don't think it's even worth considering. And yet a very substantial case can be made that the whole story of Jesus is a fiction, a fiction placed into an historical setting. And that's why we don't find what we would expect to find in terms of confirmation. Yes, there are certain areas where apologists can manage to put up some sort of defense, but they are really very weak. And I and, and, and even Nick begins it on this occasion, which is rather nice to hear him say that. He said Jesus was not worth talking about. Well, I wonder how he squares that with some of the claims made in the in, in the in the book of Acts about how Jesus calls such a stir in Jerusalem that a very substantial part of the population very rapidly were rallying to the cause of Jesus. That doesn't sound like somebody who's not worth talking about. But the extraordinary thing is nobody wrote anything for decades. And no matter how much they try and push the Gospels into an early date, there is no substantiation that they were made anything earlier than perhaps the the, uh, the aftermath of the, of the Jewish war, which ended in the year 70. So they are certainly not early documents. And then you have to deal with the fact they're written in Greek. They're not even in the language that Jesus may have spoken. So you have an alien language used to tell a story that with some difficulty fits into the actual landscape of the time. I mean, very serious questions arise about the existence or non-existence, I should say, of either Nazareth or any of the other venues where Jesus supposes did his wonderful works. And yet he avoids all the main towns where he, he might have actually been noted. There seems something incredibly contrived about that. Now, Nick has devoted quite a bit of, of, his, of his opening comment to Tacitus, but let's make one point about Tacitus. Tacitus wasn't in Palestine or Judea, and Tacitus wasn't even born when Jesus died, according to the story. So this is a very late testimony. I know it's one that apologists love to use again and again and again, but I think the balance of probability is that Tacitus was merely reiterating what he heard from Christians of his own time, which was the second decade of the second century. And that's very late to substantiate a man in the early part of the first century, why don't we find any of this confirmation evidence? How is it that the, the, the stories simply seem to echo the pr prototypes that appear in, in the Old Testament? That they've been updated and one can see it, 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 when you arrange the gospel tales, the four of them in and the order in which they were actually written, you can see how the story was tidied up and embellished with each, each reversion of of that of that towel so I think we do do the world a disservice if we aren't prepared to discuss this certain probability of his non-existence and not to allow apologists to get away with the idea the idea isn't even worth considering um, well Ken I will let, let you have another minute if you'd like it. okay 
Um, there is nothing implausible about saying that Jesus didn't exist. Do we think any other ancient God exists? Did Apollo, you know, did Zeus, did, did Adonis, you know, did Mithra? I mean, all these, these gods were believed in, and yet they are all the product of the human mind. They are not historical characters, and nor was Jesus. Okay, right. Well, you didn't take another minute. That's absolutely fine. That's uh, your prerogative. It was there for you if you wanted it. So, uh, Nick, if we could move to your second statement, then you also have roughly five minutes if you want to use them. Okay, and your time begins now. Ken has made an interesting reply, seeing as I really don't think he dealt with a lot of what I said, including using the term apologist repeatedly. Now, it's true I'm an apologist. But the statements I make have been made by an atheistic New Testament scholar just as much. In fact, I have dialogued with a number of them from time to time. Interesting points that he's made that I really think need to be dealt with. One thing he says that Jesus was made to be a fulfillment of Scripture, and therefore we should be somewhat skeptical, at least, of his existence. But what about the Qumran community? The Qumran community saw themselves as a fulfillment of Scripture, should we be skeptical of their existence, or should we realize that anyone who was claiming to be the Messiah, or who was thought to be the Messiah, would have been thought to have fulfilled scripture? Even if Jesus never made this claim, if his followers somehow thought that he had made this claim, they would want to show, yes, Jesus is in line with scripture. In fact, this would be a way of bringing honor to Jesus. It was a sort of reenactment. Ken also hasn't dealt with the evidence of the Gospels very well. I have brought up the point of Richard Burge identifying them as Greco-Roman biographies. Nothing has been said about this. Greco-Roman biographies are not written as fiction. He has also talked about how someone isn't a contemporary, and that leads us to be questionable. By those standards, then, we should question the existence of Hannibal, because Polybius doesn't mention him until 60 or 80 years later, and we could say it's quite likely that Polybius hadn't been born by the time Hannibal had died. If we followed Ken's standard, we would wind up throwing out much of ancient history. And this is the problem that I have with what Ken says overall and with Mephistus' position. I'm fine, but it can just not be consistent. When we look at the writings of people such as Plutarch and others, they write about people that lived hundreds of years at times before they died. Sure. Plutarch wrote about some people in recent times, but he wrote about people that lived long before him as well. He wrote about Julius Caesar, and we can be pretty sure that Julius Caesar had long been dead by the time Plutarch wrote, maybe on about, oh, a century, a century and a half or two centuries. When we look at what Ken says about the writing time and why things weren't written down earlier, that he forgets that the Gospels and the world around them was an oral culture. I think the best work you can read on this is Sandy and Walton's The Lost World of Scripture. We live in a written culture and we think, why would you not write things down? Well, let's look at it this way. Let's suppose you could write something down that would be costly, timely, and would only reach the portion of the population that was capable of reading. Or you could use the oral transmission, which was highly reliable in those times, as we found through studies of oral societies. It was free, and it could be communicated that way. Which one are you going to choose? In a society that's more oral-based than written-based, the oral tradition can often be the most valuable. In fact, 
Papias himself says that he would have ever heard from a living voice. And so he sought to find them as much as he could. When we instead put on the ancient world our own prejudices for writing and thinking that's superior, we do them a disservice. I also think that one of the problems of Ken's position is he really hasn't argued in the position of scholars. I have. I've given the names of scholars. I've referred to N.T. Wright. I've referred to John Dominic Crossan. I've referred to Dale Allison. And I've referred to Richard Burridge. I'd like to know how many scholars really back Ken's position. It's not because they haven't looked at the question. They have. Okay, Nick, you have roughly one minute to go. And finally, as the idea of copying from pagan systems, I think Ken would benefit by reading Mettinger's work, The Ritter of the Resurrection, where he says, yeah, there were some dying and rising gods, but nothing like the case of Christianity. And in fact, the Jewish system at the time, they were extremely resistant to pagan ideals. So much so that when we look, for instance, one example of this is the garbage dumps that we find. After 70 AD, we find pork remains there. Before, we don't. We find systems of pottery used that would be upheld by Jewish law before the destruction of a temple. Jews were all were resistant to paganism after they got back from the exile, and they kept that position. I really don't think Ken has made a substantial case, and he needs to deal with the data from leading scholars. Okay, we need to draw it to a close. That, that's you, is it? Marvellous. Okay. That was a pure coincidence. I uh, thought perhaps you were going to say another sentence there. Okay. Well, that's great, guys. That brings us to the end of the first part of our debate. And uh, of course, we will be having closing statements from you both towards the end. But now we come to a period of Q&A, which is going to be, as I said before, a little uh, well, in fact, I can say it's going to be a little less strict and formal. I haven't been that strict and formal so far. I think I've been quite gentle. <laughs> I hope you've you agree. Been, you've been an excellent <laughs> host, Julian. This is something, Ken, I can agree on, actually. You you have an excellent host. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I haven't finished yet, so I may go rotten. You never know. Um, So now, this is going to be a conversation mostly between you two, but also me as well. And so I'm going to kick this off with a general kind of question that I have a feeling Ken won't like. So here we go. (laughs) But I offer offer it to you in the spirit of friendship here. I'm just wondering, in the notes that you sent to me, Ken, you describe yourself as a hardcore atheist. That's your quote there, a hardcore atheist. Um, which kind of, you know, kind of suggests that you're pretty much set in your ways. So I'm just wondering, you know, I have heard you say in other debates and, uh, and interviews and things, you, you say that, you know, you know, you're open to the evidence. And I'm just wondering if that's really the case. Are, are you not perhaps as a hardcore atheist so set in your ways that actually no amount of evidence is going to convince you? Well, <laughs> some evidence could convince me if the Virgin Mary appeared in my living room this evening. I think I would, I would embrace that fact. <laughs> Um, Somehow I don't think she will. Um, Why I say hardcore is because I'm used to some people who claim to be born again Christians or apologists or what have you, who, who come out with a story that they once were atheists, you know. And it usually transpires that sometime during their teenage years, they, you know, maybe for one summer, they refuse to go to church or something. You know, I, I don't think you, you blow in and out of the idea of being an atheist it's with such a, a cavalier attitude or even just in a, a sense of anger, you know. Well, 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 you are speaking to somebody who did actually go through an atheistic period. I can tell you it was longer than just a little season like that. But yes, you're right. I was I was brought up in the Methodist church and then I rejected it for several years and then okay, became a yeah. Christian. But I just want to challenge you on this business about the Virgin Mary appearing to you. That does seem to be a, 
extremely high standard of evidence that you're you're asking for there you know it's like you're saying well, I, I won't believe unless something absolutely fantastically yeah. miraculous happens is that is that the way you're conducting your research well, I, I i say that in a, a certain sense of whimsy julian because <laughs> I, i've come across christians uh, who uh, frequently over the internet at least uh, appeal to me to pray right they, and they and, and if i pray they they assure me there's no, no doubt about it, they assure me god will make himself uh, his presence known to me right and when i ask and in what way uh, well then they say well he will choose and you will know and when i say and when will that happen they say well when he's ready and when you're ready and you realize you're in such a nebulous area that if i was emotionally committed to the idea of interpreting minor things as acts of, of god you know like 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 finding a, the, my kettle on the floor instead of on the shelf for example you know it, that's why I, I i respond by saying well let's let's see something that we can't just delude ourselves is a divine act Right. Yeah, I kind of get uh, the thing that you mean. You mean there. Yeah. I suppose really, I was thinking more of not things that are sort of contemporary miraculous kind of things, but the evidences, you know, that you can sort of sift in history. And of course, your claim is that there is no evidence whatsoever. I do find that a really hard position, actually. Well, um, well I mean, yeah, yeah. Let's let's do that. I mean, along the way, and Nick drew attention to the fact I hadn't commented on everything he said. He drew attention to the fact sin, about synagogues, and I don't know what he was implying, but maybe he was referring to the synagogue in. Capernaum, for example. Now, when that was first identified, Christians declared that that was where Jesus gave his sermon, you know. And yet when when the history actually or archaeology established that, that it was actually a fourth century um, synagogue. Well, then they sort of looked at their shoes and shuffled a bit. And then they decided they identified a house not far away and, and declared that to be Peter's house. You know, it's like for Christians, they find confirmation wherever they choose to look because they are wearing the blinkers, the, the rose-coloured spectacles of faith. So they will find evidence, but they won't, you know, an, an impartial observer won't find evidence. You know, the, yes, there was a boat found, uh, you know, from the first century or maybe first century BC on the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. But, you know, to say that that was St. Peter's boat, you know, it's just simply faith twisting uh, information, twisting evidence to suit their own purposes. Why wouldn't there be boats on, on, a, on a lake that has been used for fishing for centuries? It's exactly what you would expect. So, you know, that is what that is the problem is. It's the misinterpretation of evidence. Well, that's certainly an example that you've come up with. But of course, one could come up with lots of other examples. And, um, you know, I'm just uh, I suppose I just want to pursue this just for a second, because I'm just wondering how objective you really are about this. I mean, I have a question about your websites connected to what we've just been talking about. And one of the things sure. I notice about your website is that well, at least it seems to me anyway, that you, you seem not to make much attempt to be objective in your assessments of Christianity. Um, I mean, I know none of us can be wholly objective. I know that, you know, we, we, we all sure. have our biases and, you know, but we can attempt to be critical realists in what we're doing, try to be as objective as possible. I don't see you doing that. And I just want to pick out one example. On your site, you imply that Jesus is not very smart for saying in John eleven nine. I mean, he says, uh, are there not 12 hours in the day? And you imply that Jesus was daft for not knowing there are 24 hours in the day. Uh, when the context is absolutely obvious that he's talking about the daylight hours of the day, because he goes on to say, you know, if anybody walks in the day, he does not stumble because because he sees the light of this world. And I know that's just one tiny sure. little example there, and it's another whimsical example. But nevertheless, I do think that's somewhat reflective of what you do with the whole website, actually. 
Well, there's a certain amount of whimsy. I, 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 I agree to that. And I do that. So to make the subject more digestible and enjoyable to read, because, you know, it would be rather turgid and a slog if we stuck, you know, to a, a, to a very academic style on the uh, on. The sure, sure, Which, sure. Yeah. But Ken, you could also make uh, sort of amusing remarks of, you know, a less dismissive way, you know, but you don't. You, cho- you choose always to be dismissive. Well, I, 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 I don't, Julian, because I've long past any stage of entertaining the notion that any Jesus of the New Testament existed. To me, it's very, very clear. But you see, you see, you see, Ken, you'd have to surely entertain the notion in order to be objective. You can't even entertain the notion. How can you possibly claim to be objective in your assessments? Well, yeah, I... I maintain a, a, a detachment in the, in the sense, Julian, that if the evidence is there, I will consider it. When I write any article or prepare any video on the subject, I look at apologetic sites, I, I look at the standard Christian defences, I look at what they offer, and so much of it is simply embedded in Jesus' faith, faith in Jesus. It's there all the time, and every little aspect of it is twisted for the Christian message. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's certainly, certainly very interesting. Oh, yes, I want to. Oh, actually, I wanted to turn to you, Nick. So, yeah, yeah. Please do chip in. Yeah. Before you ask me a question, I'd like to respond to some of those things. First off, I actually have an agree of Ken that many Christians give evidences for the existence of God that are far less than stellar, such as pray God reveal. Where sorry, Christianity isn't Mormonism. Now, I'm not against someone who's seeking praying rather seeing. I think that can be part of it. But if you're looking for evidence of God, go look for evidence of God. Don't wait for him to do something for you because he's, if he's out there, he's not meant to be your servant. I would suggest, for instance, reading the Aristotelian Thomistic arguments, which I find to be the most persuasive ones for God's existence. And yes, I do agree too many Christians read things into signs, use every little thing as a verification of their faith. I actually tend to have a strong skepticism about many, many claims. That's why I said, for instance, that the house could have been the house of Peter. That's possible. We don't know, but it's an interesting speculation. And as for a boat, I don't know if that was the very boat Jesus used. I'm skeptical of that. What it is, is it's an example of a boat so we can know what they were like back then and get a better picture on the gospel story. And as for the eyes of faith, I think too many people really misunderstand what faith is faith is really trust in that which has been shown to be reliable. If you lived in the ancient world, for instance, let's suppose you wanted to open a bakery. You'd go to someone who had the money to help you start a bakery. That person would have been your patron. They would have given you the money. You would have opened up a bakery, and people would come, and you would give them bread, and then you'd tell them what a great patron you had and how wonderful he was. Now, the gift the patron gave you is carrots. If that sounds familiar, it's a word for grace. And your response of loyalty, that was pistis, which is faith. But yeah, I agree with Ken that there are too many flippant excuses used to justify belief in God. And I have a huge problem with a number of apologetics books. I've gone through some of them on my own blog and said, don't get this one. This is not good. I mean, I read some from time to time because I'm asked to review books. And I much rather prefer reading scholarship. Many times, I don't care if it's by scholarly apologist or what, it's just scholarship is much more engaging. And, and as for the writing style, I have no problem with being hard-hitting. 
If someone thinks their position is true, I think they should be willing to stand up for it. But yeah, we should also always be definitely watching and making sure that we're being as objective as possible. Now, you have a question for me, Julian? Uh, well, actually, I just wanted to uh, fo- follow up but on you, what you... Uh, you Ken, Ken, Ken? No, 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 I'm in charge. I'm in charge. So, <laughs> so uh, Nick, I just wanted to follow up on something uh, you, you said there. Uh, Ken, is there something to be said for perhaps you, Ken, going after the worst of Christian apologetics in order to find a straw man to knock down? Well, let me say this, Julian, when you get into into this business, right, from from my perspective, uh, you don't have a choice of your opponents. They come from every direction. Right. And so I have very liberal uh, Christian friends and, 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 and people who actually don't believe 90 percent of what's in the New Testament. And, and there are other people who write to me who believe every single word of the New Testament. And on a daily basis, I'm responding to this whole mixed bag of, of criticism or attack. And so if you like, I, 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 I don't use a gentle approach because I'm so used to the, this campaign. And yes, I don't know whether... Some will be, as many do, simply will be quoting scripture at me as if that's the last word, or they will have a more nuanced position and actually offer some real evidence. It seems to me, from what Nick just said, he is actually open to what I would call historical evidence. So in that sense, we are coming closer than perhaps some of his co-religionists who wouldn't wouldn't debate in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting, actually. Yeah, it seems that in that respect, I think there's quite a meeting of minds amongst us, actually, which is which is interesting. Interesting. So, Nick, uh, do you have uh, a question for Ken at all? Well, I would say, I'd what Ken just said also, I always encourage Christians, I talk to them, read the best scholarship on both sides of an issue. And if you don't read on an issue, don't talk about it. You'll end up embarrassing yourself. But, um, yeah, some questions I could ask. You were making the point about the Gospels. Uh, what genre do you think the Gospels fall in? Historical fiction. Do you have any scholars who agree with that? Yeah, quite a few of them, quite a few of them. And there's a list of them, Nick, on my website that is about a yard long. The number of scholars who are now mythicists is growing day by day, month by month, year by year. And you can take that as so because now so many Christians like yourself are complaining about it. You know, it's, it's an idea that is coming into its own time. What's the qualification for being a scholar? Well, that's that's tricky. I don't think one needs to go to a Bible college in, in the in the Bible belt to be a scholar. You know, some of the greatest scholars of all time were self-taught individuals. But there is, you know, one, one hopes that people can write, you know, standard English and, and, and articulate an argument in, in, a, in a correct fashion. That would make them a scholar. I would hope they know what they're talking about, for sure. So when you can, when you say that you have this yard long of scholars, then a lot of them could be just presumably bloggers. Is that right? I don't know. I'm not saying, you know, therefore they, they shouldn't be writing. But I mean, is that is that what you mean? I would say there's a lot of intelligent people, Julian, whether they're just bloggers. I don't suppose anybody is just a blogger. You know, most bloggers have got some sort of academic background of some sort. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is why, yes, I was trying to say I don't think they shouldn't be writing or what they're saying is not valuable. I mean, I'm a blogger myself. So there exactly. you go. Yeah. Exactly. But, but I just wonder what you meant, because I got the impression Nick was talking about credentialed people within a certain area of study, whereas... You're not. So there just seems to be a a difference between what you two are talking about. That's all. 
Yeah, but you say, Julian, you would know that the establishment of biblical studies has, from its beginning, been dominated by believing Christians. The first critics of the church were theologians who began to notice some of the errors and contradictions. And what happened to so many of those people is they were driven out of their positions within those places of study and, 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 and ostracized by the community. And that is still a danger if you denounce the story as a myth. With, within biblical yeah. studies. You recently had Thomas Brody, who was the, 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 I think, the director of Dominican Studies in Ireland, came out with a book saying that Jesus was a myth. And what happened? He subsequently lost his post as director of the Dominican School in Ireland. So you see what happens when you break with the, the conventional opinions of the prevailing in New Testament studies. Ken, the problem, though, is that many of the people on your list, indeed, they're not scholars. I mean, if you're counting someone who has a blog and speaks intelligently and such, I would hope I would be included in that group. But I would in no way call myself a scholar. A scholar is someone who has reached Ph.D. level of research in a credentialed field and has passed peer review in that field. I mean, Richard Dawkins, well, that, for instance. That would be, be a, a, a very no, contemporary no, 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 definition no, 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 of a scholar. Yeah. Richard okay, Dawkins, just let Nick finish instance, his point would now. be a PhD in the area of zoology, I believe, and so he could comment on biology and something like that. But if he comments on philosophy, unless he's done the study there, which he hasn't, he is outside of his turf. Now, someone like, say, Richard Burridge certainly counts as a scholar in the New Testament, but he's not going to count as a scholar if we're talking about psychology. So, I mean, when you say you've got a long list of scholars, I don't think you really do, and so... What I'm wondering is, for instance, when it comes to the Gospels as historical fiction, have you interacted with a real scholar who is credentialed and accepted as a scholar by scholars, such as Richard Burridge? Nick, if you need names, and if any of the listeners need names, they are in an article on my website, which is Jesus Never Existed Scholars, right? And that, that list grows all the time. Now, yes, many of them may not reach your current and contemporary definition of a scholar. In other words, it goes someone who attends a PhD course at one of your seminaries or, or biblical schools. That's a very narrow definition of scholar. You know, a brilliant mind is a brilliant mind, whether he goes down that particular avenue or not. And such people have throughout the history of mankind written much of our history. Okay, can I just say that to some extent we're going down a bit of a, a cul-de-sac uh, here, which I think we need to uh, move on from, otherwise we'll talk about nothing else. But I just wanted to add one thing, Ken. I mean, uh, it is the case that in a lot of biblical studies departments, there are people who do not believe that, you know, Jesus is the Son of God, etc., but they nevertheless believe that Jesus is an historical character. And it just seems to me what kind of onus is there upon them to, to reach that conclusion? You know, they seem to have a tremendous amount of freedom to... Uh, reach their own theological conclusions and yet many of them say yeah well jesus did in fact exist and you know there could be a large yard long list of, of names to add there as well indeed indeed uh, but let's put that in some sort of historical context then because you know a, a century or two ago you wouldn't have been able to say that but now we do have scholars who have a minimalistic interpretation of jesus so i agree with you they do exist and they say well he's not a son of god he didn't do all these things at all it was really quite a minor character.
character. That, 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 that is absolutely so. The problem is they come up with different characters. Their, their minimalistic Jesus is actually, you know, almost a personalized one. They're, they're off, there are many different shades of opinion as to who this minimal Jesus is. But I would then say, well, let's look at what's happened to the biblical patriarchs in the last 30 years, because they went from being literal and historical characters in the Christian mind to being marginalized as doubtful and now are basically dismissed as mythical characters. You know, this is the result of, of, of modern study of the subject. These characters are losing their, losing their place in history and gaining a place in mythology. And even Nick said Jesus was not a person worth talking about so we can see how we're going down this road yeah okay turn to you then nick uh, to respond to that what do you reckon to that yeah well when i said jesus wasn't a person worth talking about it's because he died a shame for death on a cross and no one wanted to talk about that but the main things i can talk about is that yes the definition of scholar is narrow it's supposed to be not just anyone can call themselves a scholar but getting to the main questions that we need to be talking about here for instance, you talked about the Gospel of Mark. Ken, do you know what an inclusio is? Sorry? Ken, the question was, do you know what an inclusio is? I'm not sure what Nick is referring to, no. Okay, an inclusio is where you... Oh, enthusio, did you say? No, an inclusio. Right. I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O, inclusio. No, go on. An inclusio is where you start with a statement or a referent, then you end with that same referent, and everything in between is supposed to be connected to that. For instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, we find that Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us, and in the end it says, I am with you always to the end of the age. The whole story then is this is about God with us. Now, do you know who the first apostle is named in the Gospel of Mark and who the last one is? The first apostle and the last apostle that are named in the Gospel of Mark. It's easier for you to say because I'm having to rack through my memory to to do that. I'll go ahead and say it's Peter. And the reason this is, is because, as Richard Balcom has argued in Jesus and the eyewitnesses, Mark would be writing the eyewitness testimony of Peter. And since these were things that Peter would have witnessed, that's why you wouldn't have something in there like the virgin birth, for instance. And in fact, to give further credibility to the account, if a church is sitting around thinking of names for the gospel and say, okay, we got this one here, this short little one, what kind of name do we want to give? Now, you can go with Peter, who's this head apostle, Jesus' right-hand man, as it were, high position, or you can go with little Mark here, who's a mama's boy who ran away during a mission of action, caused a rift between the first two great missionaries the church has. Which one are you going to go with? Are you going to go with Mark? Peter. And strangely enough, the church went with Mark. The only reason I can think of they did that is because they knew Mark was really the one who wrote it. Well, it's a point of view. I don't think you can prove that so, but it's an argument. It's a point of view and an argument, and it needs a defeater if you're going to say something against it. But if we move on to the, to the writings being anonymous, uh, do you know who wrote Plutarch's writings? Did you say who wrote Plutarch? Right. No, why don't you tell us who wrote Plutarch? You don't know who wrote Plutarch? I would assume Plutarch, but perhaps it's a whole... I, I, think, a whole I, I have to say, I, I think, uh, Nick, this is perhaps a style of questioning that uh, is not quite fair, so I wonder whether you could move to a different style. Okay, well, the reason I say who wrote Plutarch 
is because Plutarch's writings are for the most part anonymous, and we know that he wrote them largely because his grandson said it later on. There were a lot of writings that were anonymous in the ancient world, and E.P. Sanders in his book The Historical Jesus has argued that the Gospels would have made themselves anonymous simply because they wanted to attract attention to Jesus and said, this is Jesus' life according to so-and-so. But meanwhile, some scholars like Martin Hinger and Richard Barkham have argued that, in fact, the scrolls would have originally contained the name of the, the writer of the account. In fact, when we look at the church history, the fathers are pretty much unanimous, aside from the Gospel of John on who wrote the Gospels, and even in John, they agree that a person named John wrote the Gospels. Um, Nick, I have a question for you. This is really echoing what uh, Ken was saying uh, a few minutes ago, how, sure. in his opinion, modern scholarship has continued down the trajectory of apparently showing that the patriarchs uh, didn't exist. Is your own research backing up what Ken is saying there? Well, I'm really not an Old Testament researcher, so I can't argue for sure. I do know that there are ones that are like Finkelstein and such that are popular that do argue this kind of notion. And I can say the arguments I've seen, I'm not really entirely convinced. I think a good counter to that could be Hoffmeyer with his books uh, Israel and Egypt, and I believe Israel and Sinai. And he gives some good, interesting evidence. I mean, you can look at works like a Treaty of a Great King that shows that Deuteronomy was a suzerainty treaty. And I am definitely looking forward to John Walton's book coming out, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. Should be out next year. John Walton is, uh, at this point, my favorite Old Testament scholar. Highly recommend his work. Okay, well, that sounds like an area that we can't really discuss very much um, if you're not into that particular area very much. So, Ken, do you have any particular questions you want to put to Nick? Well, there's one I could ask him. It's a question of detail, but it'd be interesting to see where he's at, because obviously Nick has got some aspects of, of, of openness to, if you like, uh, neutral information. I'd like to know what he does feel about the saints mentioned in Matthew 27. Did they r rise from the, their tombs and march into Jerusalem after the resurrection? Actually, it's not what I fear. It's what I think. And my answer at this point is, I really am not planning on saying anything whatsoever because that is the area of my research and I don't want to say at this point, yeah, I think this is what happened or no, I don't think this is what happened because that could certainly my research before I get into it and I'm trying to be as open to both sides. I can say I do find convincing arguments on both sides. Okay, could you tell us then what the two sides are roughly sure. in, in that debate? Well, one side is pretty straightforward. The idea is that this really happened. This was a historical event with some number of people rising up from their graves and going into a city after the uh, resurrection of Jesus. The other side, put forward especially by Mike Lacona and heard by other people such as Michael Bird and William Lane Craig and still others, is that this is an apocalyptic event. And what it is is that in Greco-Roman biographies, when a great king died, you would find numerous events happen of a miraculous and unique nature. And these were meant to show that a great king had died. And there can be no doubt that Matthew is writing to depict Jesus as a great king. And so what this is, is kind of like flavor text, as it were, special effects meant to illustrate that Jesus was a great right. So this could be like a, a literary convention then. So so when when we go to say Mark thirteen, which is often called the little apocalypse, there we find that Mark thirteen is quite different from the majority of the rest of the gospel, and it's because it's it's moved into a different literary style. Is that the kind of thing you mean? Yes, and the ancient writer, the ancient Julian, I must inter interject there because although the language will be different, and you call it a writing style, I would simply say it's fiction. 
you know, either which way we agree it didn't really happen. <laughs> That's an interesting way of putting it, Ken. Uh, well, I suppose you would say that because you would think that the Jesus who delivered th- those statements didn't exist. So you, I suppose you'd have to say it was fiction. Uh, well, that, but yeah. that, that seems to be to pr- prejudice your judgment of the text itself. You are talking about a pretty extraordinary event there, Julian, which has no witnesses and no other evangelist repeats the story. I, yes, I agree with you. And that is a, that is a difficulty with it, isn't it? That's right. Julian, if I could say some things, yeah. I do know there are good counter arguments to that position. Matthew, for instance, is one most riding on messianic fulfillment, and this would be something that would be seen as messianic fulfillment, that when the Messiah came, according to some, the dead would rise. Besides, I'd like to get mainly to the point that you were asking about Mark 13. Yes, Mark 13 is written as what is called the Little Apocalypse. Uh, the last book I read on this was Jesus, the Temple, and the Coming Son of Man by Robert Stein, and I do uh, interpret Mark 13 and the other versions of the Olivet Discourse as an apocalypse. I think we do a disservice when we read them in a literalistic manner, that we have to realize that the writers were using Old Testament language, and the readers and listeners would have recognized that. And the position of people like Lacona, Bird, and Craig, and others with regard to the resurrection of the saints would be that the readers of the time would know that Matthew is not recording a literal event, but he is recording something that's apocalyptic history, and it's not meant to be taken in that way. This was common in the ancient world. Any comments to that, uh, Ken? Well, I, I, I think that says so much, Julian. It says so much. So we've moved from the literal understanding of the Gospels to what you are calling the apocalyptic uh, writing of the Gospels. In other words, the authors are indulging in a style of writing that is not actually true and is not to be read as history. Now, OK, the one about the saints is notorious, but that we could move on from that to so many of the others to demonstrate that the whole story is fiction. You know, did Jesus walk on water? I mean, would we like to you know, play with that one for a while? Is that apocalyptic? Was there really a, a, a star in the heaven that led the wise men to uh, Bethlehem? You know, or is that more apocalyptic? You know, what you what you have conceded is is that there are fictional elements in the gospel. No, I haven't. I've conceded there could be apocalyptic elements. And if a writer did not intend to write a part of it as history, then it is not an error to take it as non-historical. Yep. The writers did intend to write many things as historical. And what we do is we study each of these on a case-by-case basis. You see, part of the problem a lot of skeptics have is they make the Bible into an all-or-nothing game. It's all this... Or it's all that. If one account in the Gospels is seen to be problematic, then all of them must be problematic. That's just playing a seed of doubt, and that's not sufficient to overturn the evidence, especially the evidence of Burridge that the Gospels are Greco-Roman biographies and should be read in that light. It doesn't overturn the archaeological evidence, and it doesn't overturn the firm historical studying of the Gospels. Nick, I think we can move from this point with with, with some usefulness, you see, because I would ask you, how do you, as a reader of these texts, identify what is apocalyptic, as you call it, and what is literally true? How do you do that? I would go and use good methods of historiography. One thing I would want to consult first off as a non-scholar, I would want to consult the leading scholars on both sides of the issue. Do I want to know what people like Bauckham, 
and Lacona and others say, yeah. I also want to know what people like Ehrman and Croissant and White and okay, Martin. You go, and to, you go to authorities on the subject. Well, well, yeah. well, well I, I think that uh, kind of – I'm coming from point of view of both of you, really, in some ways. I understand your question, Ken, very definitely. And I understand, I think, Nick, what you're, you're saying there because these authorities would have reasons for saying what they're saying. Right. And, uh, I mean, the, I have to say that this sort of – flat way of reading the Bible, which I know a lot of Christians are guilty of doing. I, I find anathema, really, myself. And, you know, when I read the Bible, I am very conscious that there is a kind of shifting between different genres of writing, even within, say, one gospel. I mean, you have to pick yeah. up the what, what theologians would call the hermeneutical keys. You know, how do you how do you unlock what a text means? It, it isn't all going to be at face value. I mean, one of the things, for example, I, th I think of, you know, I look at Genesis 2 and 3, and I know a lot of people take that to be absolutely literal, and I disagree with them, because I think there are so many indications in that particular text that you're dealing with allegory, and that, that there really are many indications there. So, you know, when you have the two trees in the middle of the garden, you know, you are talking about those trees having theological functions, and so you should read it that way rather than reading it as just pure history but you get that by looking at the text and picking up these little hermeneutical uh, indicators that are there and so i don't think you can actually read a text flatly you have to know have some sort of understanding of how these ancient texts work i'd like to ask i heard ken saying so i'm going to go with authorities here because that was just my first starting point but um, ken do you have a problem with my going to authority do you think i'm guilty of some sort of appeal to authority fallacy i, I wouldn't i wouldn't say that on the evidence of what we've heard today today nick no i wouldn't you, you have mentioned a lot of names and that's fair enough I, you know, but at the end of the day any intelligent person has to form their own judgment now i would say that if you've got the capability of making your own judgments then that's what you should do and what I'm pointing out, I think I hope to hopefully pointed out earlier is there's an innate conservatism in the New Testament area of study. You know, those institutions are not there to be radical. They're not there to, to throw out new and challenging ideas. They largely protect the establishment of the church. You know, they all do that. And, and, and you can understand why, for very human reasons, why they do that. And, and, and so that is the problem with, uh, you know, yes, you could probably find a, a, a 27 other people within 200 miles of you who are scholars and who would say, Yes, you're absolutely right, Nick. You know, we, we have to we have to evaluate itself. So, no, I'm not saying you are personally guilty of of that. I would start with authorities. Of course, I would. I would. But then you have to extract what you can from that material and make your own judgment. I'm not inclined to simply endorse what, what was the official ideology of Europe for 2000 years. That's why it's conservative and that's why it serves its purposes that it does. Ken, do you uh, do you think the Jesus Seminar is conservative and bent on defending the biblical doctrines? Not especially, not especially. And they threw out most of the Bible, didn't they? And do you know who the co-founder of the Jesus Seminar was? No, oh, I know some of the names, yeah, but... Uh... It was John Dominic Crossan, and yep. you know he was elected president of the Society of Biblical yep. Literature. Yep. He's, in a good, he's a good scholar. Yeah, he's a good scholar. And is it is it not the case, chaps, that the Jesus Seminar, nevertheless, on balance, does believe that Jesus actually existed, which is what we're arguing today? Yep, they do. The, oh, uh, I'd agree with that. I would agree with that, Julian. They mm. do. But you know, you have to see the historical 
development going on here. You know, 150 years ago, there would not have been a Jesus seminar saying that. And people, you know, got into serious trouble for criticizing the church. We are in an age now where people are more skeptical and are challenging these ideas. And it's so uh, it's so interesting that after a, a huge and, 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 and furious debate, how the church is having to give ground, the church is having to concede. Well, I have to say, I think um, this is a bit of a caricature because, I mean, this kind of thing is actually been going on for hundreds yeah, of years absolutely. since the Enlightenment, really, hasn't it? And, I, and many people would point to the fact that we have actually a recovery of the Jewishness of Jesus. And so that there's actually a bit of a turning back in some ways to, you know, to finding the real uh, Jewish Jesus, which is something that seemed to have been shelved for such a long time. So I'm, yeah, I just I have a feeling, that. Ken, that your view of history is this sort of movement of trajectory and this Enlightenment progress kind of idea, which I don't really see that as reflecting real history. No, it, it, it's not a continuous movement for sure, Julian. I'd mm. agree to you to that. Uh, there was more radical thought in the 20s and 30s than, the, than there was in the subsequent decades after the Second World War. And you're right. And it happened to coincide with the establishment of the state of Israel. But the Jewishness of Jesus was reasserted and reestablished. That's absolutely true. But it's interesting now that there's little academic defense for the entirety of the New Testament. I mean, that 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 position is not really creditable, is it? You know, but I'd like to get back to this. How do we know which bits to take literally then as being history? I mean, would would you say the Gospel of John is an historical document, Nick? Yes, I would. And I would base that, for instance, that Richard Balkum has said that John is the most eyewitness accounts in his work, Jesus and the eyewitnesses. And so, I would also point out that Dale Allison has said much of it comes from. And okay, I've, so you turn to an authority. Would you accept then John's chronology over the synoptics chronology? Because they're certainly very different. Well, if you're asking that, I'd want to know exactly what areas you're wondering about. <laughs> well, we could have the turning of the tables uh, at different times. Yeah, I actually think it's possible the turning of the tables could have happened twice. That's a possibility because the first time it could have been that it just didn't end as well for Jesus. Because we have him saying, you know, 46 years and then he goes on his way. And then later on, when it comes to his coming in on a, a donkey, now he has more honor at this point. At this point, it's, hey, this has to be dealt with. Or it could be that John did change the chronology, which in the ancient world, if you were writing a Greco-Roman biography, it was acceptable. The audience would have known it. Well, I mean, this is this is a classic, isn't it? The, the two overturnings of the tables in the temple. And how about the census? Would you claim, Nick, there were two censuses, one during the time of Herod the Great and one in 6 AD when Judea was made a province? This is just inventing ideas to keep the gospel story you know, in, in, in the frame. Well, first off, the truth or falsity of a census doesn't really change the existence of Jesus. No, it doesn't. But it, but it questions the uh, no, no, please do, no, please do let Nick finish this sentence. But I actually interviewed Ben Witherington on my show last December on this, who is also a leading New Testament scholar, and asked him. And he certainly goes into the Greek a lot more than I ever could. But he does indicate that this the event could have taken place could have been the event described afterwards. In, in other words, Luke could have been writing about a census. That was, in fact, one used as 6 AD and used a time frame in such a way that to tie the story of Joseph and Mary in without changing the date of a census. And censuses in the ancient world took a long, long time 
to complete. I think there's even one account of the census that took 40 years to complete. Well, I'm not sure it's worth pursuing that particular point. Okay. Well, what, what I think what's happened is we're getting into the uh, details of too many bits and pieces, and we're, we're losing the bigger picture. So, what I, I do actually want to ask, you know, a couple more broad things, really, Ken, about the things that you've said, just because I'm not quite sure where you're coming from on some of these things. For example, you said something along the lines of there's no archaeology that really supports what the New Testament says. I mean, is that what you really believe that there isn't nothing that supports it? Well, let's say the city of Jerusalem, sir exists and that's one venue that Jesus visits so that part is if you like credible credible as a possibility what I'm saying is all the other venues are curiously obscure and are or non-existent and it isn't for lack of looking because probably that small area of land that makes up Israel or Palestine has had more attention from archaeologists than probably any other stretch of land in, in the world. And yet there is such ambiguity relating to any of the other Jesus venues. I've mentioned Nazareth. It's true of, 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 of um, you know, take the, the, the town of Amos, you know. OK, we have a nice story and there are places suggested. But, you know, there is at least four contenders for that. OK, so, yeah, so you, you pick some examples and that, that's fine. You can do yeah. that. But, I mean, what about other examples? I mean, like the Pool of Siloam. I always get that wrong. I mean, that when we visited Israel, we were shown it. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I think that exists. In, in Jerusalem, that pool does exist, yeah. Okay. The, the yeah. setting within Jerusalem is, is a different issue, right? But the actual ministry of Jesus is extremely problematic in terms of where anything happened and did these type places ever exist. And what makes that particularly interesting is if you take the places that really did exist, Tiberius, or Tarachia, or Hippos, or Jutapata, or other places that we know existed around that, you know, the Galilean ministry, Jesus never actually visits them. He doesn't visit the place we know exists. They're all in these strange and unknown villages and places. Okay, Nick, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, there's a lot to respond to there. First off, let's keep in mind with the archaeological evidence of Jerusalem that Jerusalem has also had a habit of a being destroyed a number of times. I mean, Josephus even says that you would have never known there was a town there after the Romans sacked it. As for Nazareth, there is archaeological evidence based on authorities such as Stephen Fan or Ross Voss and Yehuda Pirano or Jonathan Reed and numerous others who testified to the existence of Nazareth. It was just a small farming village. And Jesus certainly did go to some major cities, such as Caesarea Philippi, and he went to Capernaum. Just say he didn't go to some city. Well, he didn't go to that city. There was no obligation that he has to go to every city. But what I would like to ask also along these lines, since I think this got into Josephus some, is um, Kenneth, did Josephus exist? I, I have no doubt that Josephus existed. If you're asking me that question, yeah. Okay. Can you name me any contemporaries who mentioned Josephus? Any contemporaries that mention Josephus? Not off the top of my head. There aren't any. So based on your standards, since no contemporaries mention Josephus, shouldn't we be skeptical of his existence? But yet you say you have no doubt of his existence. Well, we, we have a very, very comprehensive and credible history book. In fact, we have four books, at least from Josephus. So mm. you know, I think that that's, he's got a better claim to existence that, than, than a character written about in, in four versions of a story. 
that there are disagreements even within Josephus's writings of his life story. So oh, it might, might be distorted. Let's let's just make one point about the, this evidence from from antiquity. Mm-hmm. We would all agree the Christians copied the texts that they felt worthy of copying. The only reason we have Josephus at all is because the Christians copied Josephus. And mm-hmm. and th- there are many texts that we know may have existed and did exist at some stage, which no longer exist because the Christians either didn't choose them to be copied and let them to deteriorate and be lost, or they actively destroyed them as they did when they became the triumphant religion and destroyed the vast body of literature of the pagan world. So that's why I don't give much credence to this idea there isn't much evidence from the pagan side, because we, we, we had the equivalent of the Taliban taking over the Republic. I love, I love your style there, Ken. It's great. <laughs> Ken, it sounds like you're arguing from no evidence and saying because these books aren't there and we have evidence that this is what happened. Books just die in the world, in the ancient world, due to neglect. I, mean, I seriously doubt the Christians were trying to destroy the works of Papias, for instance. And interestingly, when we have found many ancient works, for instance, if there was an area in the ancient world that was heterodox for the most part, it would have been Egypt. And yet when we go down and we look at Egypt and we look at the remains and where we find things like the Gnostic Gospels and such. They were the in a Orthodox, rubbish dump, Nick. Yeah, the Orthodox Gospels, by and large, outnumber them vastly. And if you want to know why some of these books were in a dump, I'd say try reading them sometime and see what they say in there. The books are filled with such crazy stuff, it's no doubt they weren't included in the canon. They weren't seen as representative of the life of Jesus. And aside from possibly the Gospel of Thomas, there are second century works. Nick, let's take a a major critic of the Christians, Celsus. Why is it we don't have a copy of his work, but we do we but we do have Origins criticism of that work? You know, that says precisely what the Christians did. They destroyed their opponents literature, even if they took the time and trouble to criticize it. Why don't we have a copy of Papias's work? Did the Christians destroy that, too? Well, that was we don't even know what he wrote. That was so early. Even even Eusebius calls him a man of little intellect. Why do we have missing works of Livy? I'm so so sorry to interrupt, but I do think, again, we're going down one of these little cul-de-sacs. So I do want to just move things on before we have our final statements. And uh, I wanted to come back. I suppose I'll ask this to you, Nick. One of the things that Ken uh, said was that, you know, the Gospels are written in a foreign language. They're written in Greek. uh, And yet uh, Jesus would have spoken mostly in Aramaic, uh, we understand. So doesn't that seem rather odd that they should have been written in a foreign language? Well, I suppose, you know, if you're willing to go and reach people who speak Greek and the diaspora and such and reach most of the world, you might want to speak in the language they wrote in. And for instance, if I'm going to be a missionary to Japan, which my wife has a great love of Japan, it's not going to help me too much if I write a book for them in German talking about Jesus. I need to write in the language they speak. Now, what Kim would need to show is that somehow a lot was lost in the transition of language because works did have to be translated many, many times. This would have been common in the ancient world. Just saying things were recorded in a different language, by that standard, we couldn't have anything valid from the ancient world today since few of us speak Latin in that way, for instance. Well, no doubt many scholars do, but for the average layman, no. We speak in English, but yet when we pick up something like, say, 
if I'm reading the Annals of Tacitus in English, I don't really doubt I'm getting what Tacitus wrote. Now, could I get a richer understanding if I knew the language? Sure. But what I've got is sufficient. Well, I don't want to put words into Ken's mouth, but um, if these things are written in Greek, as indeed they are, wouldn't that suggest then that we're not dealing with the early followers of Jesus here writing these Gospels? We're dealing with you know, later generations of people writing in a different language. And uh, he also makes the point that you know, AD 70 seems to be the early terminus for the writing of Mark's Gospel. Doesn't this seem rather late? No, it doesn't. In the last word of scripture, it's pointed out that we live in the time of a Gutenberg galaxy, where the best way to get information out is to write something down. In the ancient world, this wasn't so. For instance, I brought up Hannibal. The next earliest account we have of him is Polybius, 60 to 80 years later. And yet that's not a problem. We have biographies of Alexander the Great over 400 years later. This isn't a problem. It's only a problem to people who think with the Western mindset. And in fact, the evidence we have of Jesus, if we looked at just the First Corinthians 15 Creed, for instance, this can be dated to within five years at the latest of the Jesus story. That is incredibly short. And as for the writings being in Greek, one thing we have to keep in mind, and this is something that Bart Ehrman does not really argue with much in his book, Forged, is the work of E. Randolph Richards, again, on his uh, dissertation on Paul's use of secretaries. Everyone in the ancient world wrote with a secretary, and the secretary would put things in a style that would be more presentable. Sometimes Paul could have just gone to a secretary and said, hey, um, this is the kind of thing I want to say. Can can you write this out? And then he'd, the secretary would bring it. Paul would look at him and say, oh, that sounds good, and then sign his John Hancock at the end of it. Ken, I, I don't want to miss the opportunity really to put this to you, and it's, it's not quite what we've been talking about, but it's certainly related, mm-hmm. and I, I really want to understand what you think about it, really. Um, I hope this doesn't lead us on to another hour of talking, <laughs> but um, when I've looked at things like your website and, and other things like that, I've been trying to understand quite how you understand the Christian um, story to have come about. I mean, story in a fictional sense or story in, in a non-fictional sense, I just mean it in that you know broader sense. Um, mm-hmm. And I get the idea that uh, and maybe you believe this too, that Paul may have believed in a mystical cosmic Christ, and then that idea became kind of concretized later on so that a, a history, a false history of Jesus was written. Is, is that how you understand this to have come about? I'd leave out the reference to Paul personally, though that's a big issue that we could discuss on another occasion, Julian. Mm. But I, I, I do believe the idea began with the, the thought that God would not abandon his people. Right. And therefore, God has to somehow interface, as we might say today. He has to he has to communicate his message in the material world. And the, the and, and I, I think that conviction that he would do that. Uh, was present and the original story was one of of a deity sacrificed somewhere in the heavens which brought about the end of of the age and I think the original story Mark's story was meant to be a source of uh, encouragement and solace for people who had been destroyed by the Jewish war. So here was a story where the Christ figure represented their suffering and his ultimate resurrection indicated Israel would rise again and and, and the Christians were the new Israel. So 
Okay. That's where I would say. Yeah, sure. And that, that kind of makes sense within, within its own framework. Um, but um, what kind of textual evidence would you have to back that up? Okay, well, there, there, yeah, I, I, let me at that point refer you to my latest book, which actually gives uh-huh. quite a, a reasonable summary of, of how those, uh, that, 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 that story uh, coalesced and, and became, as you put it, more concretized with time. I think uh, at first it was told as allegory. Uh, and and subsequently it was taken literally. And so after going through a period in which it was both literal and allegorical, it then became the literal truth. I think that's what, what happened. But how would you back that up with, you know, which oh, texts would you go to to see this process happening? Yeah, I think you find it in, the, in, in a number of the Jewish texts. Um, as we speak, I'm, I'm referring to my own book here to give, give you a sort of list. But sure. um those ideas, I mean, one that comes to mind, I think, is is the uh, after probably an hour and a half, my brain is beginning to fuse up a little okay. bit. Sorry, um, Ken. Yeah, I'm putting you on the spot rather. But it's just an interesting question. There, there are pre-Christian or proto-Christian texts, Julian, that in, give some indication of, of the story yet to come. The original sources, of course, are, are the Old Testament prophets. There is the germ there of the day of the Lord. There is the, 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 the genesis for many of the deeds and acts of Jesus and and slowly that story is assembled but that is probably the most interesting area of inquiry uh, that we can yet make is, is those proto-Christian stories. But wouldn't you have to move from these proto-Christian stories to some sort of statements about a cosmic Christ in order to have that sort of middle period in order to well, I think sort of had- hold this story that you're defending together? I'm not sure. I think I don't believe Mark was himself writing a, a, a story that was meant to be read literally. I, I think it was probably acted out as a drama. I, 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 th- I think Mark was writing an allegory that was actually made more literal by by Matthew. I think it's wow. between those those two gospels that that change occurs. Wow, that is remarkable. Because I mean, reading it, it doesn't strike me that way at all. To be quite honest, you know, and I know that's a traditional way of reading it, but uh, that seems to that seems to make more more sense of it than reading it as a, a large allegory. I mean, it doesn't seem to not comport if, with other the, allegories, for example. You know, what I mentioned, Genesis 2 and 3. seeing it as drama, Julian. If you can interpret Mark as drama. Yes, yes, but what's the warrant for um, reading it, it, it as, it, as it, drama? No, 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 I just I will let you in a second, but I just want to finish this point that what's the warrant for reading it well, as drama? But most, No, 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 I'm, no, I will finish my point. Oh, sorry. But no, because I, I mentioned earlier, I know it, it, that was the Old Testament I was referring to, but I was referring to, say, Genesis two and three and there are so many indications in there that we are dealing with an allegory a, a drama a symbolic narrative there's so many indications when i come to mark's gospel i don't see anything like that at all i see something more like a report in which one might see elements of allegory but then it's clear in those little pockets of allegory that there's hermeneutical warrant for reading it that way but to read the whole of mark that way seems to me to be contrary to the evidence at hand well, there's a few things you have to take into account there. Of course, the Gospels went through a period of harmonization during the second century so to, 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 to sort of blend them into a, similar, a common story, although they didn't succeed very well. But 
I believe that the original mark was was meant to be not not read because there would be so few people who were literate. I think it was meant to be performed like a sacred play. And, 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 and in that sense, it works very well as a sacred play. Nobody says very much. There's not long dialogue. But on the other hand, you get choruses of people all speaking with one voice. There's lots of change of scenery, a very short uh, acts occurring, and then someone moves off again. Jesus gets out of the boat, says something. He gets back in the boat again and goes off somewhere. It, it, it plays out to me, not as, not as a real history, but, a, but as a, a dramatization of an idea. Uh, Nick, would you respond to that? Yeah, you were talking about these uh, pre-Christian and proto-Christian texts that supposedly have a cosmic Christ. Uh, could you name one? Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, we could mention. We could mention the wisdom of Solomon. We could mention, let me see, uh, the Epistle of Barnabas. I mean, there's various things here that we could serve the purpose of indicating the direction we were moving. Yeah, but do any of these mention the cosmic Christ? Well, they mention the Lord, don't they? The day of the Lord, when God himself or God in his eman- some emanation from God will right, right the wrongs of the world and punish the wicked and redeem the saints. I mean, that is yeah. present in the, in, 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 the, in the prophets, the Jewish prophets. Yeah, so, so these are pre-Christian and proto-Christian texts don't mention the cosmic Christ. What do you mean by the cosmic Christ? Do you think they would mean that term cosmic? If God intervenes in the world, surely that is divine or cosmic intervention. No, what what I was getting at was what Julian was getting at. And this is the hypothesis used by Earl Doherty, for instance, and is also popularized by Richard Carrier in his book on the historicity of Jesus, why we might have reason for doubt. And I just find it thoroughly unconvincing because Paul never mentions anything about a sublunar realm. In fact, he places everything within place and time of history, even naming eyewitnesses of the resurrection or what he thinks is the resurrection and naming Jesus's brothers, at least one of them specifically by name. So this well, is well, 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 Nick, I have to jump in there because actually Ken has not talked about Paul. He's talked about these other texts. And is, is it right, Ken, that these texts you've been referring to date prior to uh, the writing of Mark's gospel? Yes, they do. And of course, that whole area of dating of these documents is problematic, as as you know, and Nick knows. I mean, we can't be so precise. They didn't put a date on them, you know, so it is is part of an interpretation. Yeah. Well, how about what do you think about uh, James Crossley's idea that Mark could have been written in the 40s? I, I don't entertain that for a moment. Why not? I believe that Crossley is also not a believer. Is that right? That's right. He, he's a non-Christian. He's a skeptic. In fact, he's written a book with Michael Bird about what really happened with Christianity. I don't remember the exact title, but he argues against the resurrection, obviously. But he dates the Gospel of Mark to the 40s. In fact, that was, I believe, his dissertation. But, Nick, a scholar uses the 40s as his his marker. But, I mean, we both know, we all know that these documents are dated all across the canvas. You know, that's one particular scholar. I don't think most New Testament scholars would go with that. Uh, I certainly don't. And and we could quote people saying all kinds of different things on that. I do believe that that you needed a, a big event to prompt the creation of this literature. And that big event was the Jewish war that led to the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what left the Jewish people distraught. Uh, and that was the circumstances in which some salvation had to be found somewhere. Hence the gospel of Mark. 
But the Pauline epistles predate the Gospels, and they tie in with what was said. So why would Paul be out writing the epistles, and why would he be out persecuting a church, as he says in Galatians, unless there was a church that really existed? Well, I don't believe Paul did persecute the church, Nick, but I think we'll have to hold off on Paul for another Well, I, I don't know. I don't know, actually, Ken. No, I'm not going to. Uh, and if you've got a, a few minutes left, what is your attitude towards Paul? Because he is very important in this, isn't he? I'll give you my opinion about Paul. I don't know that we've got time enough yeah. to, to uh, uh, develop it further. But I, Paul is problematic. He's problematic from every direction. For example, Jesus seems to have spent his ministry you know, choosing 12 uh, fishers of men. And yet then you know, halfway through the story, the, 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 the whole program shifts and it's now the great Paul out and about uh, establishing churches, evangelizing and so on. And, and the, the 12 apostles seem to disappear into the ether. So there is he's a problem for everybody, I guess. There's also a problem of how much of Paul can we trust? Because what we learn of Paul in the epistles is very different from what we're told of Paul in the book of Acts. And so there's a mismatch there. When we look at the epistles, as every New Testament scholar is aware, a number of them, if not all of them, are declared to be inauthentic. In other words, they're false. So we have considerable problems with quoting Paul as proof of anything. And the, probably one of the most difficult things to prove is that Paul was really a persecutor of the church. But I don't think that ever actually occurred. Wow. OK, OK, Nick, please do respond to that. Yeah, yeah. there's a whole lot of things that we can say at that point. That, for instance, you say that you don't think that Paul was really telling the truth as a worker. So that's what he claims in Galatians. Under Galatians, he's lying to a church that has reason to be suspicious of his authority. Why would he recount them something that they could know? was false unless maybe he really actually was telling the truth and why would he make up being a persecutor of a church that wouldn't help gain him credibility especially in an ancient greco-roman world where your personality was seen as static i mean you say paul is a problem for everyone but this really isn't the truth the critics love paul he's a darling and finally also you say that some of the epistles are forgeries well, you know, maybe they are, but all the facts that I mentioned about the historical Jesus that I get from Paul, they come from epistles, the seven that are accepted as universally Pauline. And do you know what those seven epistles are? Yeah. What are they? Which, well, <laughs> well, well, I think we can take it as read that uh, Ken probably does know what those are, and that Ken does know that there is a, uh, a, a selection that are not generally contested by Nick, Bible Nick, I would say I raise question marks over all the epistles. I don't actually think they are even letters, and I'll give you one good reason why I don't think they are even letters. They are so long. You know, Romans, 9,000 words. That's longer than most books from the ancient world. These are documents produced by the church and purported to be letters. I can't imagine any itinerant Jewish preacher writing such massive tomes and sending them around the whole of the Eastern Mediterranean. They are church propaganda. So you can't say, why does Paul say this? Why does Paul say that? If Paul doesn't say anything in particular. It's the church that tells us what Paul said. But the fact that you can't imagine a reason, why should I take that as valid? That's just an argument from incredulity. It's saying, I can't think of a reason, therefore there isn't a reason. It's ironically, it's kind of like 
the same God of the gaps arguments that uh, atheists often accuse Christians of making with regards to creation. Now you've just got an incredulity of the gaps. Well, a 9,000 word letter is pretty massive for the first century AD, Nick. Mm-hmm, it is. And if you've got a lot to cover, then you will say a whole lot. I've done that before. I've written documents that have been several, several pages long that I would hope would be read by others. We're not talking of several pages. We're talking of, of sheets of papyrus. And you, you can't imagine the difficulties of trying to send such a massive body of papyrus round across the world, you know, in the supposed way that these letters circulate. You know, yeah. how, how were they addressed? How were they delivered? I mean, the, the whole thing is very problematic. It would be difficult, but we do have many forms of writing. In the ancient world, we have, for instance, leave us here in Kruger's book, there is one of the early texts in the New Testament, I think it's called, where they do go into detail on letter writing and book writing and all manner of writing from the ancient world. Have you gone through that book yet? I didn't catch the title of the book, Nick, but you're missing the point. We have a lot of letters from the ancient world, and many of them are far, far shorter than Paul's epistles. So there's mm-hmm. something odd here. How could this itinerant preacher write such long documents? That's why many scholars reach the conclusion they are composite documents. They are a number of smaller texts stitched together to make the letters we now have. You said many of them are. That means that not all of them are. That some of them well, are not. I mean, and, yeah. some of them are very short. Philemon is very short, isn't it? Yep, yep. First Thessalonians is very short. Philippians is short, but others are longer. Romans is written to a church Paul has never been to, and he needs to establish himself more. In First Corinthians, I follow the route of Ken Bailey in his book, Paul the Mediterranean Eyes, that... First Corinthians was meant to be a sixer, which would go around to all the churches, so it would need to cover a whole lot more. And let's face it, the Corinthian church was really messed up, if the account's accurate, and it sure needed a whole lot. Well, I think, I think, guys, we're going to go round and round well, and round in circles uh, with that one, as indeed we can do with many of these questions, yeah. which is why it's so fascinating. We will go to the final statements because we've been a long time on this, but it's been a very fascinating uh, exchange that we've been having there. So may I invite you then, Ken, to do your last five minutes, and uh, you can start. Start now. Okay. To conclude, to, to somehow wrap this up in, 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 into a digestible five minutes, I don't expect to convince uh, devout Christians uh, of something that they would find utterly painful. I mean, that is the problem. I was recently asked to speak at a, a local group. And a week or two later, I was asked, well, we have one or two elderly people come in. They've got uh, they've had bereavements in the family. I don't think they could handle uh, this topic right now. So I understand the sensitivity of the subject. You know, many people think they're going to rejoin their loved ones in heaven. Well, good luck to them if they think that I wouldn't necessarily want to disabuse them if they want to stay with that. I I have a fidelity to in, to historical truth because I think the institution of the church has a very bloody and criminal history. And that is true from its beginning until even our own age, when we you know every day we hear about church abuse, um, church, church uh, the church behaviour towards their practitioners and so on, uh, it's a very sad and dark story, and that that's what 
motivates me as much as anything else to try and bring this truth of historical truth to people's eyes. Now, I wouldn't actually mind at all if there was a Jesus as some minor character in, in, in Palestine. If that's what he really was and I could see some evidence for that, I'd be only too pleased to report, well, actually, Jesus was this small-time rabbi. He, he didn't live in Capernaum or Nazareth. He lived in Caesarea. Um, he didn't actually perform any miracles. He was perhaps a, a local conjurer. And, uh, yeah, one day he upset uh, somebody and they arranged for Pontius Pilate to uh, crucify him. If that were the true story, I'd be happy to report it or any variation on the theme. The fact is, when you go looking for evidence for Jesus in a practical fashion, you just don't find it. And if you don't allow your faith to exaggerate and distort and misinterpret the reality you know, you will agree that despite that vast history of the church, the vast you know, outpouring of propaganda in every possible way, that the story basically began with a fable, a fable in, in designed to encourage and give hope to people who were in despair. It then became literalized. It then became an embellished story borrowing from wherever and it didn't really amount to much until it was accepted as the state religion by the Roman Republic. Now, that is what changed things. That's what made a cult very similar to many others of the time. That's what elevated it from that, that obscurity. There were not many Christians until Constantine allowed the faith to be legal. There weren't many Christians at all, but then it became very prudent to endorse the religion that in itself had endorsed Constantine as being chosen by God. It was the right, politically correct thing to do to become a Christian. And you had the pagan aristocracy putting up some resistance, but many of them joined the church and became its early bishops. One minute, Ken. One minute. And so we see how by a curious set of circumstances, a myth of, of which combines so much of, of other myths itself became endorsed as a religion. And that religion then came to dominate 2000 years of, of, of world history. And I feel it's a grand occasion that in the 21st century, we are dismantling this religion and exposing it for the fraud that it really is. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. And again, you didn't use all your time, but uh, I guess perhaps you didn't need to. Enough so, uh, <laughs> OK, OK. So uh, now, Nick, can we turn to you? And then, of course, you will have uh, up to five minutes and this will be the final statement in the debate. So over to you, Nick. Yeah, I'd like to thank Ken for coming on and discussing this topic with me. I think it's certainly been a lively and interesting exchange. And I'd like to thank Julian. I think you've been an excellent host to us. And I hope this podcast is edifying for people who are listening I started off basically saying that I would present evidence for a historical Jesus, which I did, and this needs to be overcome, and a better interpretation needs to be put in its place. I don't think this was happened. For works of scholars were not presented, the ones that I presented 
weren't argued against. Richard Burge was not argued against. Richard Bauckham was not argued against. N.T. Wright was not argued against. Instead, I just heard assertions, and I would have liked to have heard the scholarly evidence, but it wasn't there. Anyone can make assertions, but you can't make up your own facts. And what I encourage people to do is go and read the scholars. If you want to be skeptical, great. In fact, please do be skeptical. I want you to bring Christianity the toughest questions that you find, because I am convinced that in the end, Christianity will stand up. And if you look at the evidence, you will find there is a historical Jesus at the core, and this is a Jesus that must be dealt with. In our day and age, Jesus is probably the most popular figure that there is. Everyone wants to do something with Jesus. And so in the end, I think the main question we all have to ask is, what are we going to do with Jesus? And that comes about only after we do the study and the work. If we seek him, I'm convinced we will find him. But we have to be really seeking him. We can find a Jesus there, but are we encountering Jesus who really walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, or are we encountering a Jesus that would be highly liberal by many of our standards? I contend that the Jesus that walked is the one that the New Testament really talked about, and in fact, the one that died and rose again. While that certainly is a topic for another debate, I do contend that, yes, that happened, and that that Jesus is indeed the king of this world right now. And while there are many things that Christians have done in history that are shameful and we should all look back on with regret, there are many things that have been done that have been excellent. The life of Jesus has been a life of encouragement and blessing and change to many who have encountered it. He has caused our ethics to change forevermore. He has been the subject of so much art. How much beautiful music has been composed in the name of Jesus? Now, this doesn't argue necessarily for his historicity. It shows Jesus is not an easy figure to dismiss. And I think the Memphis' position is just doing just that, trying to just dismiss it without really using the work of leading scholars. And if you go and you read the works of leading scholars, Christian, atheist, liberal, conservative, I don't care. You will find that aside from a few on the fringe, that the scholars just do not agree. And these are often ones who would love to attack Christianity and would love to demonstrate its falsity. And yet they have to say at the end, there was a historical Jesus. Why is it? Because the data is there, pure and simple. I encourage people, look online, find things that are good and helpful. My blog has several resources at Depot Waters. At the same time, go to your libraries, please. Get books. Do the research. Do the hard research. It's difficult at times. It's not a lot of fun. Sometimes there are times you would rather be doing other things. But research is worth it. And even if you don't come to the conclusion that I've come to, I would be pleased to know that you've at least done research and we can come and we can discuss the research together and discuss the data and discuss what the truth is. Again, I thank everyone here for letting me come on. It's been a joy and a privilege to get to defend this. And I encourage people to come and find me at Deeper Waters. We can continue talking about this. But I especially encourage you, try and find the historical Jesus. He's there and he's waiting. 
Thank you very much, Nick. So that does, in fact, conclude the rather long debate for today. I didn't expect it to be going on this long, but it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you both, gentlemen, for... It must be a couple of hours, Julian. Yeah, incredible. Well, I'll see what I can do with the editing. But as I said to you before, I shall be edited as fairly as I possibly can. Thank you both for your contributions to this programme, for your hard work in defending your respective positions. I recognise it's not easy. I mean, I'm not sure that I would want to do it myself, but I'm sure it's quite stressful. Thank you for doing such a good job keeping all this going for all this time. And I think really for the spirit of this debate, which has been been very respectful and friendly, and it's been energetic as well. I think that's that's great. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure nobody has gone to sleep listening to this. Um, I hope not. So thank you ever so much both of you for coming on um so i just want to ask just a couple of questions then nick you mentioned your your podcast and your website could you actually spell out the address of that so that people can find you d-e-e-p-e-r-w-a-t-e-r-s dot w-o-r-d-p-r-e-s-s dot c-o-m and if you go there you will find a link to all the past episodes of the podcast and a link to our iTunes feed. Excellent. And Ken, could you also direct people to your website as well? Indeed I can. But let me first thank you, Julian, for being such an excellent host and thank Nick. Nick, it's been a delight to to discuss this with you. Um, I'm sure we could discuss it on future occasions with, with, with joy. Um, yes, well, my website is very uh, easy to find, and, and, and I won't need to spell it out because it is jesusneverexisted.com. <laughs> if you go to that website, you'll also find a link to my YouTube channel for people who prefer to watch rather than read, and, and that is a, of the similar name, Jesus Never Existed. And the answers are there. So if you if you do the research, as, as, as Nick suggests, yes, I think you, you will find it very uh, satisfying so thank you it's an absolute pleasure to have had both of you on and uh, you say the answers are there well i'm going to borrow something from your website ken where you say welcome to enlightenment and so i'm going to say to both of you um that i hope that uh, you both will continue to be enlightened because we'll have different views as to what that might mean but i, I certainly wish that of all of us that we should be enlightened and so it uh, just remains for me to say thank you again nick and ken for coming on the show it's been wonderful to have you on and i wish you both well Thank Thank you. you.